I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm so happy that Julia Mae Jonas is here. I just told her that her her novel is is like catnip made specifically for me. Um, she is a playwright and she teaches theater at Skidmore College. She holds an MFA in playwriting from Columbia University and lives in Brooklyn with her family. Vladimir is her debut novel. Hi. Hi, how are you? Great, because I get to talk to you. So, Julia, I, I feel like an American audience has very specific connotations when they pick up a book called Vladimir. Tell me about how you named both your book and this man um, who, who is an object of lust in, in the novel. You know, I think it was more intuitive than it comes off in the way that it frames the entire book <laughs> because it certainly does but I really started off and I thought um I just really started off thinking about the main character and her relationship with his younger co younger colleague and he happened to be called Vladimir and things kind of went from there in that way that you know writing can be Amazing. And if we are, if, if we do think of Nabokov immediately, mm -hmm. Lolita um, specifically, then it really is a kick in the pants to see Vladimir <laughs> tied to a, a chair on page two. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I no think spoilers. I thought about it in so many, I thought about it in so many different ways. I also thought about it, you know, he has that famous foreword that he writes to Lolita where he talks about the ape painting the bars of his cage. I, I thought a lot about that. I mean, I thought a lot about um, some of his other novels like 
Laughter in the Dark, which I think is just this wonderful, tight story of suspense and very similar to Lolita, but also different in it, what its aims are and what it's tackling. Um, so he's, I mean, he contains multitudes, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I did end up pulling on all of those, but it, it was really just, it was like a little, um, it was like a little flame to, to get me going, I think, at the beginning. Um, and so you have Vladimir, and then you decide that your main character will be nameless. Tell me about that decision. Well, I wanted us to feel inside of her head, and I didn't want us to look at her like she was an object outside of us. I wanted us to be inside of her thoughts and um, I also feel like there's a there's a tradition in gothic novels of these unnamed narrators, and it does add this sense of urgency. The books, my book's not particularly spooky, but spookiness in a way, as a vibe, maybe. <laughs> and, disturbing um, in some places, let's say. <laughs> yeah, disturbing, definitely um, charged. Charged. <laughs> and I, yes. And I, I think I felt like the not naming her gave us that more. And I also got to page 75, I think, when I was writing the first draft and realized I hadn't named her and then thought, well, that is some signal to me to, to stay with that. Sure. And then, of course, her husband of many years um, has perhaps the most generic name for, for a, a man. Yeah. Yeah. He's a standard male. And he's a very specific cliche that we are anyone who studied English, I think, right? Kind of, kind of knows, knows the archetype of John. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, I think he, I described him recently to someone as having kind of mild or low level cult leader vibes. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone who can insult you and make you feel a little grateful for getting the the insult. <laughs> um, I think he has a lot of charisma, some of which we sometimes see a little bit of, but he's so far brought down when the novel begins that we don't see a huge amount of his charisma. Um, and I also just think someone who is very, very needy for the approval of others in this way that when we look at a man, we misconstrue it for a sense of power. Um, and if we were to see that in someone else, we would be able to easily identify it as as weakness. But I think his his desire to be loved um, has in the past given him a kind of status. Hunting down answers to your questions can be rewarding. When it comes to hiring, you don't always have as much time as you'd like to spend finding great candidates with the right skills. That's why there's Indeed, the best hiring partner your team can get. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. 
Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Maris. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to indeed.com slash Maris to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash Maris. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He and his wife have this open marriage that it's been open for a long time. And yet things have gone south. And um, I, I, I think the description in the editor's note was that um, it's a post Me Too novel. Mm. What, does, what does that mean to you? Uh, I mean, I think that as a person of my generation, which is much, which is, 20 years younger than the narrators, but older than um, students going through college now, potentially, you know, I still feel connected to a sense of um, sexuality as a form of freedom and as a, um, as a as something that can be used against you you know protectiveness about your sexuality making sexuality feel uh traumatic or or disturbing um is a can be used i think as a way to wield power over female sexuality and that was something that was much more prevalent about the sexual politics of when i was you know in college and growing into adulthood so it was really about kind of taking down all of those uh, taboos. And then we had Me Too come along and Me Too is making 100% valid points about the way that men abuse their power. And some of it is awful and some of it is uncomfortable and uh, probably all of it should stop. Um, all, all of these behaviors should stop. There's not really a question about that. I think it's a question about someone looking at that uh, from the point of view of like, I've always tried to demystify the sexual experience for myself. And now it's being made into this thing that can be once again used to harm me um, and, and having questions about that. Yeah, and, and so, you know, John is accused by various former students of having sexual affairs with with them, you know they're they're all over eighteen. In the very first gasp of the novel, someone uses the word rape, and you shut that down. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still something wrong with it. I don't know if you read um, 
or, or Amir Srinivasan's um, op-ed in the Times recently? I did. I, I was sent it by many people. Yes. I, I figured because she yeah. really got into the, and, and, and you do too, that it's not just about the power dynamic, but the expectation that we come to a specific person to learn mm -hmm. there. Yeah, I mean, I have, I don't think that John is right for having those affairs with students. And also just, you know, to give to myself, uh, let me start again. Um, yeah, I don't think that John is right when it comes to his affairs with those students necessarily, but I'm also not very interested in weighing down on whether he's right or not in the in the uh, job that it is of being a fiction writer. You know, I'm I'm interested in kind of describing these dynamics and describing this woman and being inside her and her reaction to all of it um, and uh, going from there. You know, I I think especially as a fiction writer, it's really difficult to engage in movements because we're so interested in specificity. Like we like individual people and individual characters and that is what is interesting. And so what was interesting for me was just this individual woman reacting to this time and the ground shifting underneath her in more ways than one. Yeah, and, and she does seem to have a, one of a line that struck me um, is she's talking about college students. She is also a professor and she's addressing the question of like, are college women more sensitive than they've ever been ever? And she says, they changed what we couldn't, that we like the things that they thought were entrenched and then we call them soft. Like there is yeah. that, there is that um, knowledge that this new generation does ha have a handle on some things. Yeah, I think I think so much of um, you know intergenerational arguments, um, especially if you're occupying a very similar world like the narrator is with her students. You know, they're probably fairly left and fairly liberal. Um, you know, it, it seems it's often more about methods, really, than it is about the substance of what we're getting at. It does feel like the methods with which with we're um, addressing them. You know, I mean, for me, with her, I was interested in someone who both had a lot of self-awareness, who was able to see a lot of sides, not every side, but a lot of sides, and who also felt like the ground was shifting underneath her, you know, from being always considering herself to be completely on the right side of history mm -hmm. to all of a sudden finding herself on a, on a shaky ground where she feels like she's, you know, defending herself or having to defend herself or having to justify her uh, thoughts about things or beliefs about things. And she's never had to do that before. Um, and that's infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she's mad, she's angry about it. <laughs> and there is something as a reader, even just to experience her dealing with the idea of what complicity means. 
what was she complicit in her husband's misdeeds because what she didn't she hasn't publicly denounced him she uh you know first of all I think for someone like her again specifically coming from the time that she's come from and having achieved the things she's achieved she's a tenured professor she's a novelist she's done all these things on her own to be tied remotely to her husband is incredibly insulting his his good deeds or his misdeeds I think uh very much she came of age at a time where she was uh, uh attempting to keep her personal life and her professional life separate um, as a woman. You know, it's interesting. I have older uh, female friends who are in their 50s and above, and they've remarked to me, because I have two children, that the way that women my age talk about having their children and mention their children in public spaces is so different from the way that they would have done that um, when they were at the beginning of their professional lives, when they had kids who were two and four. They just felt like they could never, ever talk about them. Um, because that would uh, suggest that they weren't professional or they weren't serious. So I think she's really coming from that kind of water, you know, across the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she likes to imagine perhaps that she's subverted traditional gender roles. Mm -hmm. And yet. (laughs) Yeah, and yet... uh, I, she certainly um, hasn't, I don't think, Um, in so many ways. I mean, I think a lot of the book is about her starting off the book, asserting herself as someone who thinks independently. And as the book goes on, we find more and more and more and more that she is very socialized and um, very shaped by traditional expectations of femaleness and femininity and um and that those really uh uh, weigh down on her and have have you know made her who she is in her relationship with John and and potentially push her towards some extreme actions later yeah and I think one of the areas that you really hit this home um because she she does seem like like a real cool lady who I'd like want to impress or want to or like kind of like above the fray in some ways and yet she has that primary shame that so many women do about her body image and and food and she has a really tough relationship to food um until she lets herself go a little bit and and mm-hmm. and then it feels like the way she eats is sumptuous yeah i mean i think she feels caught in that um you know that that both that expectation i mean it feels very basic but like that when i describe it like this but this expectation that you know, you're supposed to enjoy food and enjoy good food and have high, you know, appreciation for beautiful foods. And then also that that somehow um, is something that's not going to affect your body. And I think that she feels, um, you know, I I think that she, uh, again, is just coming from an era when 
there was not an appreciation for, you know, there was not anybody positivity at all. That was, I, I think that would have been a foreign, a very foreign concept for her at, at any, um, at any time when she was, when she was growing up. And, and then you get to a certain point, you know, certainly I see this in, in my mother, you know, where it's just entrenched, you know, or my, you know, my husband's uh, grandmother, you know, was, was very, very sick. And, you know, the joke that she was making was like, well, I, I'm finally thin. Um, so yes, sad. that's, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so entrenched. I just don't think, I just don't think you can um, get away, get away from it. And I think she's also such a, you know, this is part of why she's kind of fun to be around. She's such a perfectionist in terms of wanting to be ahead of the game. I think she, I think that creates a lot of conflict around all of the body image uh, and aging issues. Um, and so it just, you know, it's like anything that you feel conflict about is going to um, uh, exist more potently inside of you. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, let's just as we're supposed to enjoy food, um, but also look great. You're supposed to grow old naturally, but also remain, <laughs> yeah, unchanged. Yeah, exactly. Um, or or not care. I think that's or the, not like, care. Or, yeah, and you're supposed to not care. <laughs> and I can never. I, I can't imagine a time when I wouldn't care. Mm-hmm. She says at one point. I wanted to erect a fortress around my body, a fortress of care and grooming. And that self-care is a method of self-defense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we all, or I shouldn't say we all, because we definitely don't all. Um, you know, it feels like, or I always feel like there's one more thing I could do and then I would feel invulnerable or something like that. I mean, and of course, you know, that's a, that's a losing game. You're never going to feel invulnerable, um, in, in any way. And I, I think, um, but I think she's, she's always trying for that. I mean, as we're talking, I'm realizing how, how, much she's trying for that all the time in her thoughts and her actions to to push away this sense of uh vulnerability or to make to to build something around herself that she feels safe inside of and and perhaps her developing obsession with vladimir has something to do with fortresses as well yes i think so i think so After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters I can love and hate. Is that too much to ask? Nope. Thanks to Sundance Now, I will always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can be obsessed with. 
Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series, A Discovery of Witches. It's the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. Seasons one and two are streaming now, and season three, the final season, is streaming January 8th. You can stream Sundance Now on all your favorite devices as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now for free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code MARISREVIEW. That's SundanceNow.com code MARISREVIEW for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com code MARISREVIEW. And then there's also this other dynamic about aging that you get into, which is so insulting. Um, to women in particular, that younger people condescend to her. There's a scene when yeah. when kids in her class or young women in her class <laughs> mm-hmm. tell her that she's hot. She doesn't have to stand for her husband's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And and it feels like the worst insult. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even being much closer in age to my uh, students who I teach, um, I find that that is something that can happen. And that's not necessarily their fault. I think what they're trying on is how to own what they think um, and how to how to meet a professor as a as a peer, you know, it is a fantasy of meeting a, a, a professor as a peer. And of course, they're young, they're under 22, their brains are not fully formed, so they're not very skillful at doing it. Um, and sometimes you can, you know, that those encounters can be quite bristling. But it, I think, um, I think the older that I see, you know, professors or especially female professors around me get, the more that that happens to them, the more people start to say, not the, not even that they're hot, but that they're adorable or that they're like well, their mom even- or that they're so cute. Um, it's <laughs> so, uh, so maddening because these are, you know, these are people who have PhDs and have written books and are tenured track, uh, or, you know, have are tenured. They're not tenured track. They're tenured at, you know, illustrious universities. And then there's, you know, a 21 year old being like, oh, you're so sweet. And of course, there, there are the young women in, in the narrator's women's lit course, American right. women's lit, who, who wonder why we care about whiny white women. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think it's, um, no, go ahead. What were you going to say? <laughs> Which is just such a striking piece of satire. <laughs> I'm say. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's, 
uh, uh, I mean, I, I also see that as a kind of like self-hatred in a, in a way of these, these younger women, um, both self-hatred and just, of course, not owning this history uh, that, they, that they've come from. And, and it's so interesting to me because yes, the narrator has a lot going on, but one thing you make very clear is that she's really generous, both as a teacher and a mother. Um, there, there's a passage in which she talks about how it, it, it may have stemmed from self-doubt, uh, but I, I very much identified with her on this, that doing close reads of her students' work is a way to connect with them that it's, it's a way of seeing them mm -hmm. or making them feel seen mm -hmm. um, in a way that probably not everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are certain, um, I think for her, her way of, of feeling like she has integrity as a, as a professor is really making sure her students feel seen um, and knowing that like to feel seen by someone who's in those kind of authority positions um, is, is one of the most valuable things that you can have as a, as a student um, at any time. Um, and, you know, I think certainly comes from her reacting to feeling like potentially like she didn't have that herself and wanting to wanting to offer that. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm guessing that John doesn't do quite as many close reads. <laughs> I, I think, it, yeah, I think he's a check mark, check mark yeah. uh, grade. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about writing in the novel though, because I love that when she's on a roll, the satisfaction she feels is almost sexual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think writing can be certainly in all of the parts, in all of the book, if there's a part where I um, let myself kind of come out the most, it would definitely be in the descriptions of writing um, and, and the process of writing. And I think writing can be uh, when it feels good and it doesn't always feel good, just so, so, uh, uh, such a ride, such an emotional ride. <laughs> it can feel physical and embodied. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, it doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it just feels pained and awful. Um, I had that day yesterday. <laughs> I have that day many days. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But I think sometimes it really can be a, a, a almost, I would say almost like it used to feel like when I played um, the violin and I knew I was playing well and I knew that I was connected um, or, and, and well, there doesn't need to be any of it like valuation, but I just, I felt connected to my instrument. I felt present and uh, you know, what a, what an opening experience that is. That can feel so good. Love that. Um, Julia, this was a delight. Before we go, mm -hmm. will you please recommend some books for us? I know, I mean, it, 
I, one of the joys of reading Vladimir is just getting all of your literary references. Um, yeah, well, let's see. So I tried to do things that I'm, I'm currently um, interested in. Great. Uh, so uh, I just finished um, Trust by Domenico Starnone. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I haven't read it, I, but I've read about it. <laughs> yes, um, it's fantastic. I think it's so uh, great. And there's something um, really inspiring about uh, the intimacy of his concerns uh, or, you know, inside of the book and, and how they're really, it really is about this kind of ongoing uh, power play between these two people, but power play is reductive um, because it's, uh, and it's beautifully written and, you know, Italian literature is so seductive. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, another one I uh, really loved recently was uh, Sarah Moss's first novel, Ghost Wall. I have not read it and I am dying to. Yes, it is. Oh, I see so, a theme here though. Good, good, good. Yes, <laughs> it's so incredible. Um, it is like, it's one of those books where it's doing one thing and then you get to 80% of the way through and you realize it's doing this whole other thing and then and the book just really opens up for you in this amazing way. Um, and it's gorgeously written and very scary um, in, a, in a really like deep, scary way. Um, and then the last is because I, I come from a theater background, I'm gonna plug. Um, this book that I reread quite a bit, which is Adrienne Kennedy's People Who Led to My Place, which is her biography um, or autobiography, but it's told, it was written in 1987, but it's told in, in a very kind of current style of um, just snippets from like her first memory to, you know, through to 1987. And it's like this list of her memories and they can be a piece of art that she consumed or they can be like the time a burglar came into her house. Um, and they all kind of work together in this really, really satisfying way that even if you don't care at all about theater, you will enjoy um, reading. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Julia. Oh, thank you so much. I feel honored that you have me on. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.